Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Okay. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Danielle Karapkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario, at the Bayat, Beth Avram Yosef of Toronto. And we are recording for webyeshiva.org, their platform, which uh, is rich with Torah content from Eretz Yisrael. Um, we are studying Morena Vuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. We are in Section 2, Chapter 13, and uh, we are embarking on a new topic today. So the first the uh, several chapters, the introduction and the first 12 chapters of the second section, were devoted to trying to explain how the emanation process of God works to bring about all of reality in our existence, in our purview of existence, through a process of emanation or what the Rambam had called overflow. And now that the uh, Rambam has explained the, uh, the, the mechanism of metaphysics that interacts with our world, in the first section of uh, section two, uh, or, or yeah, part two of Morena Vuchim, we now are going to use the next 16 chapters from chapters 13 to chapter 28. We're going to be discussing cosmogony or the origins of the universe, um, uh, or as we would call it from a Judaic perspective, creation. And uh, the Rambam is going to be discussing uh, what he believes to be a topic that is second only in its importance to the belief in a unitary God, which is a belief in the creation of the universe. Um, and as the Rambam will say, not only is it necessary to believe in creation, but it is necessary to believe in a creation of what's called yesh me'ayin, creatio ex nihilo, that God created everything from absolute nothing, from absolute ethos. Uh, okay, so we're gonna we're not gonna let ourselves get ahead of ourselves. So what I'm going to do is bring up the uh, the handout for today, where the first thing that we're going to try and present is just a very brief synopsis of something that we're going to see recurring over the next several chapters, which is the Rambam presenting three different models of the origins of our universe. Um, uh, the one, the first one. Let's bring it up. Uh, okay, there we go. So, um, the topic of our discussion for today is three theories of the origins of our universe and the meaning of time, because the Rambam will take an interlude on that topic as well. So, let's just give a brief synopsis of the Rambam's three theories for the origin of the universe. The first one is the Torah's view, and we'll get to that presently, which is the idea of Hashem creating everything from absolute nothing. The second theory is Plato's view, 
what he says is the opinion of a number of philosophers, but is most attributed to Plato, which is creation from primordial matter. And what that means essentially is that there has always been formless matter. If you remember Aristotelian science dictates that all the objects that we uh, perceive as existent in our world, in our purview, um, whether they are living creatures or plant life or inanimate matter, um, they all have shape and form. Um, and so everything in our world is a combination of both matter and form. Uh, before God created, according to Plato, there was formless matter, um, uh, what is known as in Greek as hule, or um, uh, uh, that which just was pure potential but which has always primordial matter, which has always existed um, for all of eternity uh, that God brought about its, its existence and maintains its existence. And at one point, uh, God decided that he was going to convert this formless matter into matter with form. And that is what creation is. And so Plato's view is something that the Rambam says is also not according to our Torah, at least at first glance, that's what's what he seems to say. And we're going to be spending the next several weeks perhaps deliberating whether the Platonic view of the origins of the universe are acceptable from a Torah standpoint, but at face value, they are not. Okay, the third opinion is the view of Aristotle, that everything as it is now has existed eternally. According to Aristotle, there was never a creation. Everything the way we see it now, a world with trees, with plant life, with bugs, with humans, and everything that we see that exists as part of nature has always existed. And this is for sure for the Rambam, something that cannot be accepted uh, for a Jew who believes in the Torah. Okay. So the first thing that we're going to see is that in the introducing this chapter on page 281 of the Pines edition is that um, the Rambam is going to tell us that these three opinions that he's going to be presenting over the next several chapters are opinions uh, for those who believe that there is an existent deity. Okay, and which means that there are other opinions as to the origins of our universe uh, for those who do not believe in a God, such as he's going to say Epicurus at the end of the chapter. But he says, I'm not going to be dealing with those opinions. Those are clearly outside the realm of acceptability, but I want to present these three opinions. And he'll explain why he's framing the chapter in this way. So he says that the first uh, opinion which is the opinion of all who believe in the law of Moshe, our master, peace be upon him, is that the world as a whole, I mean to say every existent other than God, may he be exalted, was brought into existence by God after having been purely and absolutely non-existent, and that God, may he be exalted, had existed alone and nothing else, neither an angel nor a sphere, nor what subsists within the sphere. There was ab absolutely nothing. Afterwards, through his will and his volition, which in Hebrew, Kafich translates as which means God had a desire. And after God had a desire for there to be 
our world, our existence. He willed our existence into being. So there was, there's both chayfetz and ratzon. There's both a desire and a will to make that desire come to fruition. Now, this is important to note. And the reason why I'm just harping a little bit on that language is because if you recall from previous chapters, the way that the Rambam had depicted in his Aristotelian model for this process of overflow of God's uh, essence into our world to bring about all of existence, the Rambam had described it somewhat mechanistically as that it happens perforce based on God's nature. God perforce must emanate and cause all of these things that we find in our existence to come into existence. So the Rambam wants to point out that those who believe in the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu accept the fact that God has a desire and a volition to, to, to create and to bring about certain things. It's not that God is an automaton and that everything that he does is automatic, such as the way that uh, Aristotle depicts the prime cause, but rather that God is a volitional being. Okay. So he brought into existence out of nothing all the beings as they are, time itself being one of the created things. Now, the Rambam is going to now take an interlude, uh, a significant interlude in this chapter about the meaning of time. And I thought that it would be worthwhile for us to devote just a few minutes on this topic, uh, simply because it's very elusive. Um, the concept of time is something that there's a very interesting website, exactlywhatistime.com, if you wanna be able to look into this a bit further. Uh, the, the introduction in this website states, most websites and books on the subject begin with a candid admission that time is a curious and slippery concept which continues to defy definitive explanation despite hundreds, even thousands of years of trying. We are told that it is enigmatic and ineffable, but that does not help us much in our search for the true nature of time. Nearly two and a half uh, thousand years ago, Aristotle contended that time is the most unknown of all unknown things, and arguably not much has changed since then. So uh, I wanna use that as sort of our um, place of departure to really try and understand where the Rambam is coming from. As an Aristotelian, the Rambam also believes that time is somewhat enigmatic and ineffable. And therefore he's going to try and explain uh, to the best of his ability that when God created the universe, yesh me'ayin, part of that creation was time. And he says that time uh, is no different from any other accident of uh, anything that exists. Everything that exists has essential qualities and it has accidental qualities. And I just like to review, even though we've discussed this many times before in our discussion of the Moren of Uchim, defining Aristotelian terminology, let's review what the definition of an accident is in metaphysics and Aristotelian philosophy. This is just from Wikipedia. An accident is a property that the entity or substance has contingently without which the substance can still retain its identity so that even if it didn't have that quality, it would still be that thing. When you look, when I look at myself in the mirror, I say to myself, if God forbid I didn't have a hand, 
I would still be who I am. I would still be Daniel Karapkin, even without a hand. So therefore, my the, my hand is an accident of my of my existence. But when I look at myself and I say, if I didn't have a heart or if I didn't have a soul, I would not be Daniel Karapkin. Or if I didn't have a brain, for that matter, I would not be be Daniel Karapkin. So then, that defines my brain as an essential part of who I am. An accident does not affect its essence. It does not mean an accident is used in common speech, a chance incident, normally harmful. Uh, but he says examples of accidents are color, taste, movement, and stagnation. And movement, of course, is a very important accident because basically when you say that a bird is in motion, motion is an accident of the bird's nature. It means that even if the bird was not moving, it would still be a bird. The fact that it's moving is an accident of its, of what it is. It's an accidental attribute of the bird. Accident is contrasted with essence, a designation for the property or set of properties that make an entity or substance what it fundamentally is and which it has by necessity and without which it loses its identity. And so therefore it should not be surprising to you using this basic definition of what the word accident means or mikre in Hebrew, that on page 281, according to us, time, says the Rambam, is one of the created accidents as our blackness and whiteness. Just like an object, a piece of coal could be black, but even if it lacked the blackness, it would still be a piece of coal. Or a handkerchief is white, but it would still be a handkerchief even if it lost its whiteness. Similarly, time, is an accident of, uh, of reality, of everything that is created. And therefore, even though uh, we think of time as being something that has an, has an infinite expanse, the Rambam says time, just like any other accident of, any, of every existent thing in our world was created, so too was the accident of time created at the time of creation which means that we lack even the vocabulary to describe what existed before creation, because the word before implies that there was time uh, at a moment preceding creation, which of course is not the case. Now, in the bottom paragraph on page 281, the Rambam wants to try and explain why it is so difficult to get our heads around the concept of time as a creation. And the reason he says that it's so difficult is for two reasons. And I'm not going to read the whole text inside, um, but if you take, if there's a very interesting encyclopedia entry that sort of uh, lays it down. He says, Maimonides, whose discussion of time appears in his Guide of the Perplexed, notably in chapter 73 of section one, which we studied together, accepts the definition of time laid down by Aristotle as the number of motion according to before and after. Now that's very difficult to translate, but as you'll see what it means is, is that when the only thing that can uh, be uh, spoken of in terms of time are physical bodies in motion. When there is no motion, there is no time. Time is a product of motion that you can measure the uh, uh, the span of something that is in motion 
from its starting place to its end place. Time, therefore, is neither an independent substance, nor is it identical with motion, although it is totally dependent upon the latter and constitutes an accident of motion, which is itself an accident of body or corporeal substances. So only uh, uh, physical or bodily substances can be in motion. Remember, we learned the Rambam in section one had said that God is not ever in motion because God is incorporeal, but time is a product of motion. If there is no motion, there is no time. And so essentially you have a double accident. Motion is an accident of a bird, which is a physical body. Time is dependent upon motion and therefore is an accident of an accident. And therefore, time, he's in this encyclopedia entry, time consequently possesses only a quasi-reality. Not only is it an accident of an accident, but it is composed of a past that is gone, a future that does not yet exist, and a present that serves only as a limit between the two. So what he's basically saying is the two things that make time such a difficult concept for the human mind. First of all, it is an accident of an accident. Motion is an accident of physical bodies and time is an accident of motion. It's dependent upon the idea of things being in motion. And number two, it's even worse from a conceptual point of view than saying that something is black or something is white because a quality of blackness or whiteness within an object is something that lasts permanently. So we can get our head around it even in the abstract. But time is something that is constantly changing like the blink of an eye. And therefore, it's very difficult for the human mind to grasp a concept which is constantly in flux and is only here momentarily, here now and gone the next moment. So those are the two reasons that time is a very difficult concept to grasp. Number one, because it is an accident of an accident, or and number two, it has no permanent state as the Rambam states on page 282. So this is the thing that the Rambam wants us to consider, that even though it is a difficult concept for us to grasp that uh, time is part of creation, nevertheless, it is necessary for us to accept this principle despite its elusive uh, elusiveness to the human mind. And therefore, he says at the end of that first paragraph on page 282, consider this matter thoroughly, for thus you will not be necessarily attached to objections from which there is no escape for him who does not know it. And what he means to say is, is that if you were to entertain the possibility that time existed before God created all of physical matter, he says, if you affirm as true the existence of time prior to the world, you are necessarily bound to believe in the eternity of the world. For time is an accident which necessarily must have a substratum, which means that you cannot have time unless you have physical reality for time to rest upon. Time does not exist in the abstract without three-dimensional space. You cannot have the fourth dimension of time without the three dimensions of space. And of course, we're, we're entering into um, uh, Einsteinian theories of relativity and so forth. 
Accordingly, it follows necessarily that there existed something prior to the existence of this world existing now, but this notion must be avoided. You cannot believe that anything existed in a three-dimensional space before creation, because that would imply that the world was not created, yesh me'ayin. I find it fascinating that the Rambam's depiction of time is something that modern science discusses when talking about the Big Bang. And here again from the website exactlywhatistime.com, time and the Big Bang, source number four. The general view of physicists is that time started at a specific point about 13.8 billion years ago with the Big Bang when the entire universe suddenly expanded out of an infinitely hot, infinitely dense singularity, a point where the laws of physics as we understand them simply break down. This can be considered the birth of the universe and the beginning of time as we know it. Before the Big Bang, there just was no space or time, and you cannot go further back in time than the Big Bang in much the same way as you cannot go any further north than the North Pole. So if it's not abstract enough for you, let me just add one more dimension of this discussion, and that is while it is somewhat uncanny that the Rambam's depiction of creation as being something that it creates not only three-dimensional space, but fourth-dimensional time is very uncannily similar to modern depictions of the Big Bang. Let me still point out that the Rambam does not believe in an evolutionary creation. In other words, the Rambam's creation process is not like the Big Bang, even though it shares the similarity, this feature that both the Big Bang theory as we know it today um, and, uh, and the Rambam's description of creation, both have time being created at the time when God says, let there be existence. Nonetheless, the Rambam does not believe in an evolution of substances into more sophisticated substances, which is what the Big Bang says, that there was this huge um, uh, explosion which created just formless matter that over the course of time eventually evolved and was brought into our state of being as it is today. The Rambam says that this idea of creation yesh me'ayin is that there was absolute nothingness, and then boom, with the snap of a finger, there was everything that exists as it is today uh, with the species of trees and animals and so forth being brought into existence. Now, does that mean that if the Rambam was presented with the Big Bang Theory, he was transported in a time machine um, and brought to the 21st century that he would uh, reject the Big Bang Theory? No, probably he would adjust his, he would recalibrate and would adjust his understanding of creation accordingly if it was demonstrated to him scientifically. But, and, and it's, it's also possible in some way to perhaps reconcile the Rambam's depiction with the with Big Bang Theory, but it certainly wasn't on the Rambam's radar. Uh, we would be a little bit more fascinated uh, by the Ramban's depiction of creation, where he talks about the idea of the initial creation being of uh, this formless matter, which sounds like this very super hot uh, dense and super dense material of the Big Bang, eventually cooling off and forming into the substances that we have in our world today. For more on that topic, I refer you to Professor Schroeder's book, Genesis and the Big Bang, which is an interesting read. Okay, but to conclude this discussion, the Rambam in the uh, uh, paragraph on page 282 then says, 
this is one of the opinions. In other words, the first opinion that we're going to see today is the opinion of the Torah, that the world came into existence, yesh me'ayin, okay? And it is undoubtedly a basis of the law of Moses, our master, peace be upon him. And it is second to the basis that is the belief in the unity of God. It is second only in its importance as far as being a fundamental of Jewish belief to believe that God is the creator. That is the second most important aspect about God other than believing in God's unitariness, that the fact that he is, um, that he is one God. Now, a corollary of God being unitary is that he is incorporeal, but it is a completely separate principle of faith to believe that God is the creator. It is the second most important thing to believe about God. Okay, so nothing other than this should come to your mind. And then he says that it was the project of Avraham Avinu, of Abraham, our father, who began to proclaim in public this opinion to which speculation had led him. Uh, the Rambam is of the belief that our patriarch Avraham came to the conclusion that the world was created by God. And this is what led him further and further along into his devout belief in the unitary creator. For this reason, he made his proclamation in the name of the, the Lord, Kale Olam, the Lord of the world. He had also explicitly stated this opinion in saying, um, uh, um, maker of heaven, Osei Shamayim Baaretz, that God is the creator of heaven and earth. Now, what is interesting, even though we don't have these uh, psukim presented on our handout for you in Hebrew as we normally would, these verses are from respectively chapter 21 in Genesis and chapter 14 in Genesis. What's curious is that these two quotes about how Avraham refers to God are both in, in the context of Avraham interacting with the other nations of the world of his time. Uh, the first uh, one that appears in chapter 14, Avraham is interacting with Malkitzedek Melech Shalem in Parshat Lech Lecha, after Avraham has this very important um, victory over the four kings and is able to rescue his nephew Lot. He has an interaction with a priest of Salem, Malkitzedek, and Avraham wishes to share with him his belief in God. And therefore, he says, Arimosi Adi, um, I lift up my hand to the Lord of Apai, Konei Shamaim Va'aretz, who is the maker of heaven and earth, right? And the reason why Avraham does that is that he wishes to educate, to proselytize, and to educate, um, and perhaps to the proper word would be to evangelize to the world his belief in God as the creator. Avraham does the same thing in Parshat Vayera, several chapters later in chapter 21, when he has an, an encounter with a king, um, king of uh, the king of the Philistines, uh, and and his and his general, Avshalom and Fichol, um, uh, uh, are the people that Avraham, um, I'm sorry, Avimelech and Fichol Sartzivao are the two people that Avraham has this encounter with. And the Torah then concludes that story with Vayita Eshel Bive'er Shava, that Avraham planted 
a tree in Be'er Sheva after that encounter, Vayikralo, and he called out to the name of the Lord, Kel Olam, the Lord of the world. Now, if you look at the Midrashic material on that Pasuk, and Rashi's commentary as well, you'll notice that what Avraham did was that he created some kind of a place of meeting for travelers at that crossroads. Some say that he established an inn. Some people say that he used that tree as a way of serving guests and providing them with their provisions. But what he did was is that when people would come, he would say to them, uh, when they would thank him for a nice cool drink or some food, he would say, don't thank me, says the Medrash, but he would say, give thanks to God, Kel Olam, the creator of, of the world. And that was what Avraham was trying to proliferate throughout the world, that not only has the world existed uh, from the time of creation, but it has a creator. And this creator made it yesh me'ani. That was Avraham's project, and it was something that he deemed to be so fundamental and basic to what it means to believe like a Jew. And he therefore felt it was such a fundamental that he needed to get out to the rest of the world. And that's why the rest of the world has had this attitude of creation from time immemorial going all the way back to Avraham Avinu. So this is the first opinion. This is the opinion of the Torah and the Rambam created an interlude during this explanation to try and explain to us that time is a creation as much as, uh, as, much as uh, formed matter is a creation. It is contingent upon uh, physical uh, matter being existent. And just like God created everything, including form and matter from nothing, he created time from nothing. Uh, and, and therefore, this is something that we have to accept, even though our minds have a difficulty uh, getting our heads around it. And what also, what, how this helps also is to help clarify that God's existence is also independent of time. And this will be very helpful for us in later discussions when we talk about the conflict between determinism and free will, that God's omniscience, his foreknowledge of everything, uh, is such because God exists outside of the realm of time, because time is merely a construct of the physical world. God is completely, uh, uh, God completely transcends that construct of time, and therefore is not bound by the rules of cause and effect and the rules of, of past, present, and future. Okay, I hope this was helpful. We're going to hold it here for today, and I need to apologize that we're going to be taking a break for the next two Mondays, and we will resume three weeks from today since I will be traveling. So we are in the middle of chapter 13. We have not yet seen the other two theories of the origins of the universe, uh, the Platonic view and the Aristotelian view. We will save those for our next discussion. Wishing you all the very best, and uh, we'll see you soon. Take care now, everybody.